0: Good morning, guys. Hey, how about we all stand one more time, if you guys don't mind, and open your Bibles to the book of the Gospel of John. So uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book, uh, chapter three. Uh, If you have not been with us on Sunday mornings, we typically just take books of the Bible. If you guys don't have a Bible, I think we have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. Raise your hand so they can see you. If you don't own one, uh, go ahead and keep it. It's our gift to you guys. Uh, we've been in a series going through the Gospel of John, just kind of letting John be sort of the curator, taking us through this journey, as discovering who Jesus is. Again, for many of us, uh, especially within the Western world, we are somewhat familiar with who Jesus is. Um, I've said this before, that kind of puts us in a potentially dangerous space because we can become so overly familiar with Jesus that he doesn't shock us, he doesn't uh, awaken us, he doesn't move us, we're not... Uh, we're, we're not in awe of him. We just sort of like grow accustomed to him. That's, that's a dangerous space to be in. And so my hope is that as we uh, follow John on this journey, kind of let him be the tour guide, uh, that we would find our hearts, uh, reawakened to the beauty and the greatness of who Jesus is. So I'm going to read, uh, some of the passages that we looked at last week. So again, a little bit of a review, but it's all part of one big major uh, story. So, uh, just if anything, uh, let John kind of be like Grandpa Pastor John uh, story time with Grandpa Pastor John. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, I'll pick it up at verse 22. Again, this is a story of another John. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, a guy named John the Baptizer. So don't get too confused with John the Storyteller, author of the book. And John the Baptizer, who we're going to learn about right now. So verse 22, I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. Let's, let's go. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples, they went to, to the Judean countryside. And they remained there with them. And he was baptizing. Uh, John was also baptizing in Aenon, near Salem, uh, because the water was plentiful there. And there were people that were coming out to be baptized. Uh, for John had not been yet put into prison. Obviously, uh indication of what's going to happen in John's life. Uh, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan... To whom you bore witness, Jesus. Look, he is baptizing and all are going out to him. And then John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness. And I said, I am not the Christ, but I have come, been sent to before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, so an indication of himself, is the one who stands and hears him. And yet he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Verse 30 is what we looked at primarily last week. Uh, Famous phrase from John the Baptizer. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Now this is what we're going to focus on today. Verse 31. And he who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness of what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on him, that God is true. Verse 34, he, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, he, uh, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in a Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him and this is the word of the Lord let me pray Jesus we ask you right now that uh, these words the that come to us uh, from a friend of Jesus and in some ways they are going to sound unfamiliar to us um, there's going to be vocabulary and language in here that might even feel offensive and troubling but God, on this tour, we, we pray that our hearts would be open. And even though there may be offense, God, that we would know what to do properly with that offense and bringing it to you and allowing you, who you claim to be king over all things, to reorient our lives and our hearts and some total of who we are around yourself. So we commit this morning in your hands and we pray that you would show us yourself in a fresh new way. One that would shock us and amaze us and blow our minds and, and be a, a fuel source for a whole new way of living our, our human lives. And We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Uh, why don't you all grab a seat? So, real quick, uh, last week we saw a little bit more focusing on the life of John the Baptizer. Uh, We saw that he was a pretty important character in the story of Jesus. He was actually Jesus' cousin. Um, He was kind of set out as sort of like this forebearer, if you would. He was the guy that was uh, designed to kind of prepare the way of the Lord. He went out. He was kind of like this voice uh, announcing, you know, basically declaring, hey, Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming, the King's coming, get yourself right. And ready for when he arrives and when he comes. Um, and we saw that John in that summary passage of his in verse 30 says that he must increase, he must, uh, I, he, he must increase, I must decrease. It's a phenomenal passage. In fact, it's one that we kind of, uh, spent a little bit of time, uh, digesting and thinking about last week. We basically made three observations, uh, with regard to, uh, how John oriented his life around Jesus. And so quickly by way of, uh, review, uh, we see that number one, he recognized that Based upon these three ways of orienting his lives around his life around Jesus, he saw that everything comes from God and that everything can be taken away from God. So that was how John was able to kind of orient everything around him. Number two, he saw that humans are not king, uh, but ultimately play a significant role. That human beings, again, kind of in the hierarchy of things, we are not. We are not the king. Jesus is the king. Part of the problem in our world today is everybody thinks that we are are the king, right? We have seven billion kings on planet Earth trying to exercise their monarchical reign. That's our problem. Like, that's one of the reasons why we, we literally can't get along. Because you offend me, and I offend you, and we just offend each other, and we're in this constant perennial state of offense. And then lastly, we saw last week again that his joy was ultimately found in Jesus the King. So um, I want to use this as sort of a springboard into what we'll just focus on here today. Again, by way of verses 31 to 36, there's all sorts of uh, discussion by way of the scholars and theologians as to who's actually saying this. Is this john the beloved or john the writer of the actual gospel um or is this john the baptizer there's some ambiguity as to who this is some actually believe that it's act, it is actually john the baptizer kind of summary statements um john kind of appears so far again we're only in chapter three of the gospel of john uh but john is john the baptizer has appeared several times throughout the book already and because he like i said he plays a significant role uh, he was a very well-known uh, preacher, uh, first century. And so a lot of Jewish people were coming out to him. And so uh, why John is such a significant role is because, again, what John the writer is trying to do is he's trying to summon uh, witnesses, eyewitnesses, uh, people that have found Jesus to be truthful and faithful and have devoted themselves over to him. And basically John the gospel writer is summoning these witnesses, in this case John the baptizer, saying... Even John believes in Jesus. And again, we've said this from the very beginning, that uh, John, the gospel writer, has an agenda. And uh, every good writer really does have an agenda. I would say that they have an agenda. Their agenda is ultimately to get you into something. So in this case, John, the gospel writer, has told us pretty clearly from the very beginning, his agenda for you in reading this gospel account is so that you would ultimately at some point believe. That your life, your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your imagination, everything about who you are would come to faith and confidence in Jesus. That shouldn't shock you. All of us as human beings, we believe in something. I've said this many times before. Um, it, it is not an issue of like some people have faith, others don't. That's, that's a false premise. Every one of us in this room, every person that you have interaction with, we have faith in something. Question is, what do you have faith and confidence in? Um, there's been a major movement over the past, you know, 100 years plus, uh, uh, faith and confidence in uh, physical material reality. That's we would describe as science. There's a deep faith in science, and I think there's some good plausible reasons why we can believe in science. Science as and holds a lot of truth and truth claims and ideas. But even that has come to a point of uh, a cold-hearted, just simple. Faith or confidence in cold, hard facts doesn't really cause someone to be alive. So it kind of has led to faith in my emotions, faith in myself, faith in what I believe, faith in who I am, who I think I am, who I perceive myself to be. All of us have faith in something. question is, is what you have faith in sustainable? Does it take you into the long-term future? Does it does it allow you to become a better human being if you want to put it in uh, you know uh, terms like that? Does it make you more uh, integrated as a as a as a person? Does it make you more compassionate as a human being towards other people, or do you kind of move from one faith to another faith claim and then you just find yourself becoming more narrow minded, more hard hearted, more focused upon really your own self centered uh, narcissistic type ways? Um, faith is something that all of us. And John's whole point is he wants, in writing to us about who Jesus is, to to leverage our confidence from whatever it is in something else to become confident in who Jesus is. That's his whole big aim. So, with that being said, again, he draws John the Baptizer into the story. You say, hey, John the Baptizer, even John, this very, very successful preacher, this guy who's done an incredible, amazing amount of ministry, even John believed and transferred his confidence into Jesus. And again, his whole point is like, like John's a, John's an influencer. John's successful. John has done a lot of amazing things. John is recognized by Jesus. And even he believes in Jesus. And the big idea is that if John gives credibility to Jesus, then there's something to this Jesus story. That's his whole point. So with that being said, what I want to really think about today is I have a question that, uh, two questions that want first to really think about. Number one is, uh, What did John see in Jesus that compelled him to orient the totality of his life around Jesus? It's kind of a big question. What was it that John saw about Jesus? Did he just simply see Jesus as a really gifted teacher, as a really gifted preacher? What did he see about Jesus? Now, Again, if John just saw Jesus as a really gifted preacher, you don't sell the totality of your life over to that person. You don't say things like, I must decrease and he must increase. I mean, some of you guys are, many of you, you know, I'm sure many of you guys are college students or you have a really gifted professor, and for some of you, you went from, you know, high school into a state where you got a a really gifted teacher or professor over you or a speaker or someone, and you're, like, really compelled by what they have to say. You don't sell everything to become their disciple, right? You don't look at their life and say, I'm going to become exactly like them and learn life just like they have learned life. We might be moved and motivated by what they have to say, and again, we live in a world of influencers, where their voices have become more profound, more distinct in today's world than ever before, by way of the medium of social media, um, and while people might be, you know, drawn into sort of a fandom, like, oh my gosh, I'm a follower of X, Y, and Z, and this person, and that person, that podcaster, and this influencer, uh, we don't become like them, we don't look at their life and say, we want to create a space in our lives, and Focus energy and become exactly like that person. In other words, we would not say what John said. I must decrease so that they can increase. We don't say that type of stuff. But John did. So the question again is is who and how did John see Jesus? How did he perceive him? That he was able to like literally orient the sum total of his life around Jesus. Or to put it another way, is it possible that our inability kind of put it into a context of personal Observation, uh, maybe even critique of looking at our levels of discipleship or lack of discipleship and kind of put it in this context. Is it possible that our inact, that our inability to do the same, like John, is due to a perception that our God is too small, too unsatisfying, and too untrustworthy? Is it possible? So to put it into another context, is the problem in non-discipleship in our context, which is America, which is California, which is San Luis Obispo, or halfway between San Luis Obispo, or halfway between San Francisco and Los Angeles, we live on this part of the West Coast. Is it possible that our inability to fully devote the sum total of our lives to Jesus the way John did is because of some form of perception that God is really not that worthy of our confidence, our trust, is really not that satisfying, and really not that big. Or to put it another way, is our God too small? Are we are are, are we when when we hear someone say, follow Jesus, and that gets interpolated within our mind of like follow this small, unsatisfying, uncompelling, non beautiful, untrustworthy being? No. That would make sense if that's the reason for our inability to fully devote everything to Jesus. But my hope this morning in just kind of following the story of John is to really learn a little bit more about who Jesus is. And there's at least three things I think that are really profound. I think worthy for us to just pause think about, reflect upon, consider that John tells us about Jesus that uh, I, I want to just reflect upon. So uh, we'll go through these uh, one by one. Number one, we'll just take a look at that. We see that John uh, perceived Jesus first and foremost to be the bridegroom. He says this. So again, this is language that is kind of foreign to us when we hear language like, God, uh, or Jesus, in this case, the bridegroom, that obviously means that whoever is following Jesus is the bride. So if you're a dude, like a man's man dude, you're a little bit uncomfortable at this particular point, and I get it, I understand. But just follow the story. Let the Bible give you... Uh, wisdom and understandings, and then you can, you know, formulate your opinions and your assessments and all that. But first of all, let's follow the metaphor. The metaphor is important because this is uh, a metaphor that is found all throughout the Bible, and it takes us, and I would even add, it takes us in the very heart of the story of the Bible. Again, to quick uh, synopsis, uh, the story of the Bible, it begins in Genesis 1. God, this uh, creator, creates humanity creates this world that's habitable for human beings to live on to thrive and flourish that this god is basically the king over all things and this god king invites human agents into this partnership you can say covenant and again this once once you once you see where i'm using language as bridges uh it's not that far off to assume uh the language of of marriage because marriage is a covenant covenant is a partnership partnership is this Deep, rich, intimate relationship with another human being. And this is exactly the language that God uses to say, I want partnership with human beings. I created them. I love them. I breathe life into them. I created a habitable space where they can thrive and flourish and and be creative and use ingenuity and use their mind and their capacities and their, their power and their skills and their abilities and their artistic abilities and their creative abilities. And all of these things to somehow flourish on this planet. And and what we see throughout the entire Old Testament is, especially in the first three book uh, chapters of the Book of Genesis, is that God says, in order for you to do this well, you have to have wisdom. You can't do this on your own. You need wisdom, kind of like a child, um, you know, wanting to to create something or you know, create like a Lego Millennium Falcon, like. Maybe if you're like exceptionally like gifted, you know, savant level kid, you can probably do it. But for the most part, you need you need a dad that has 16 hours to just invest of his time to, to, to sit down and like read the instructions and take you through. It's kind of like putting together like an Ikea bookshelf. The big idea is that you need wisdom. You need instruction. Uh, you need what Bible would describe as Torah. That's what the word Torah is. There's instruction. And yet Adam and Eve, are the prototypes of all human beings... Um, in other words, they reflect elements of who you and I are. Uh, have sort of this mindset of like, I don't need help; I can do this on my own. And what has happened throughout history is human beings have kind of taken this posture of pushing God off into the margins, and as a result, we've found ourselves wrestling with brokenness and death and extra nuts and bolts that we're like this should have fit somewhere. I don't know why I ended up with 16,000 extra nuts and bolts to this bookshelf. It doesn't make sense. But that's the world that we have lived in. And a lot of it's been as a result of our own self-creating because we've pushed God off to the side. And as a result of that, rather than partnership, we've found ourselves in a one-sided relationship where God loves us and we don't return the favor. And we've unleashed brokenness into this world, into our lives, into the lives of other people. And so the story of the Bible is that God is so deeply, deeply committed to his creation as both creator, as father, as husband, uh, that he has entered into the creation to bring it back to himself, to reestablish uh, this covenant that has been broken or messed up or ruined. And again, you follow this covenantal language or marriage language throughout the Bible. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Because again, uh, when Jesus or John the Baptizer talks about uh, marriage type language, they're not just kind of crafting it on their own. They're basically borrowing or tapping into this ancient historic language that was part of their, their, their history. So I'll read you a couple passages. So, for example, Isaiah chapter 54, verses uh, 5 through 6. Uh, if you're writing this down, you can uh, write this down as a note and just go back to it, read it later. Isaiah 54, 5 through 6 says this. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Uh, the God of the whole earth he is called for so the lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of your youth when she was cast off says your god so this image of israel god calling israel to kind of be his his bride his wife um, Israel kind of abandoned and shut off to the side and by way of you know being uh, broken and, 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 and alienated by way of their own sins and rebellion against God. But God's aim was to, to partner with human beings in order to come into this world to do something about the brokenness of, uh, brokenness of human beings in this world. And the way he did this was he partnered with a nation. Actually, if you follow it upstream, he actually partnered with a human being, Abraham, and Abraham's offspring, which becomes the, the nation of Israel. Uh, for what purpose? Guess where Jesus came from? came from the Jews. Why is that important? Because, again, it falls all the way upstream to where God's saying, I want, I, I'm so devoted to humanity, I'm going to step into my own story. I'm going to bear the very same things that they themselves have borne. And feel and experience the very same things that they themselves feel and experience. Uh, and the New Testament is filled with images that that movement, that action on God's behalf is described as a word that we all long for. Love. That's what love is. Love steps into another person's story. It feels what they feel. We would call that empathy or sympathy. Love takes upon themselves, an individual, the weight of another person's burden. They take upon themselves, if you want to use New Testament language, the sickness, the burden, the hardship, the baggage, the trauma, the pain, the sin, the defilement. All of that they take upon themselves. And if you've ever loved anyone, you know this to be true. Because when somebody whom you love does something that's offensive to the relationship, you feel that pain. And it's hard. And you're left with a choice. I either run away and divorce, or I press into that pain. Enduring the pain, even in greater layers, in order to bring about redemption and healing. That, there's no other way around it. No other way around it. And we see the story of God saying, I will step into the pain, Take it upon him myself. I will absorb it in all of its consequences and result in order to bring about a pathway of healing. So Jeremiah chapter 31, another marriage an, an analogy, says this. I, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. This is a little bit lengthy, so just listen to it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. This is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them. By the hand, I brought them out of the land of Egypt, referring to the book of Exodus. Uh, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. To close the so just pause right there. You, you can feel the pathos of Yahweh God. I gave myself to them. I married them. But they broke the covenant. They were unfaithful. If you're familiar with the story of Hosea, again, it's one of those images. His very lengthy uh, accounts. Of, of, of loving someone who really doesn't love you. If you've ever been in a one-sided love relationship, you know how in- incredibly painful that is. Because it's like you are giving yourself out. You are being vulnerable. You are exposing your own nakedness at the expense of being mocked and shunned and alienated. It's painful. This is God's story. God giving himself to human beings who, for the most part, didn't want him, and shoved them off. Verse thirty-three says, uh, "For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days," declares the Lord, "I will put my law within them, my Torah, my instruction. I will just, I, I won't, just won't be out there; it'll be, I'll put it in them. I'll inject it into them, in a sense, if you want to think of it that way, in their hearts. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God; they will be my people. And no longer shall they teach." Uh, his neighbor in each of his brothers saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And imagine, imagine being in a relationship where a deep offense happened, where you have to take upon yourself. Again, you're left with a choice. You either divorce, you leave, do something bad, um, or you forgive. That's painful. What do you do with all that pain, that grief, that offense? You do what God did. You, you have to absorb it. That, that just comes into you. And and then, and then the hope would be that through this act, this painful act, I might add, of forgiveness, that something transformative comes out the other end. That's life-giving. It's beautiful, redemptive. This is what we see that God does. So, first of all, we see this idea that, that John sees Jesus... As this bridegroom. Israel, obviously, has this unfaithful bride. But John sees Jesus as bridegroom. Therefore, John is able to look at who God is and say, he is this covenant-keeping God. Even though we are not covenant-keeping human beings. So, so, therefore, as a result of that, John is able to say, I'm going to devote myself to this Jesus. Why? He could say, he must increase. I must decrease. Because he is far greater than I could ever even dream of being. Second thing is we see that he sees Jesus as King. And I get this from verse 31, uh John chapter three. He says this, for he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth, belongs to the earth, speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Uh if you want to jump forward real quickly, you can write this down in your notes. If you want, uh John chapter eight, verse uh I think it's I think it's a uh, twenty-three. Um it says, and then he said to them, You are You are from above, or sorry, you are from below, I am from above, this is Jesus speaking, you are of this world, I am not of this world, I told you that you would die in your sins unless you believe in, uh, that I am he who will die in your sins. And the point that I think Jesus is making here clearly is that he is above. If you, I'm gonna use a language, I'm gonna use a word that many of us have heard a lot over the past you know, five years at least, three years specifically, but the word hierarchy. Uh, again, I've mentioned this before, our culture, we do not like this word hierarchy because of hierarchical systems or organizations that have emphasized hierarchy over uh, empathy and kindness and goodness. In other words, uh, it's been, if you want to put it in another context, the abuse of power. Wherever there's an abuse of power, you always have um, some form of a system that emphasizes their hierarchical uh, supremacy over another human agent. And as a result of that, oftentimes leads to abusive uh, context. We've seen this. I mean, I've seen this over the years, even on the most basic level where you might have a, uh, a husband who is an abusive husband, and he might say something like this to his wife. You know, uh, I, I am the head of the household. You are to submit to me. That is an abusive human being. A Husband should never be forcing that type of a context ever i 've I've, I've said this many many times before, like that if a husband is having to somehow keep pushing his hierarchical uh strength and ability over someone else he he is not leading he 's forcing that 's a bad dude you need counseling, you might need intervention you might need help we uh, as a church we want to help you if that 's someone that is you or you know someone that's in that particular context, that is an abuser. And the point is, is that as a result of that, as a culture, we've seen that kind of like fan out into various things of like Hollywood or even like um, uh, various uh, institutionalized churches, uh, even within government, where you have these various institutions that have a hierarchical structure that uh, tends to force certain hierarchical positions as a means of keeping people oppressed and abused. And as a result of that, we as a culture have kind of steered away from any type of uh, hierarchical language or vocabulary, and and that's unfortunate because we we need hierarchies. Like we need people that are in places of leadership. There's this thing called order, and, and and that comes through good leaders that recognize their ability to lead well, that love other people, that show compassion and kindness and and empathy to other people. What we don't need are abusers that are that are throwing out that hey I'm at the top of the food chain statement or narrative. That's, that's, that's not what we need. Um, but as a result of that, um, if we have a skewed understanding of hierarchy, then I, I promise you, you will have a skewed understanding of the Bible. The Bible will be just one continual offense to you after another, and it doesn't need to be. And the, the Bible is a story of a God who is literally, for lack of better terms, at the top of the food chain. He is above all, over all. But he's also a God who's deeply committed to lifting up the alienated, the downtrodden, the broken, the sick, the hurting, the suffering. In other words, he uses his power. We, again, as a culture, have been conditioned to be very distressing of power, um, power structures. And I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I share that same degree of cynicism with many of you. Um, but again, to throw out all forms of power structure just because many of them have been abused. And I've even said this many times before that many times you see uh, the champions of we need to get rid of all forms of hierarchy. We need to get rid of all forms of power is just another attempt at another angle of a power grab. And so, yeah, we should be suspicious. Yes, we should have some degree of cynicism. Uh, that, that, that may be healthy, maybe, 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 I'm just saying maybe. But if it begins to disrupt our understanding of scripture and the power structure that God establishes, then when God sets himself up as king over all things and says, I'm king, follow me, and we have a skewed understanding of a power structure, or we become deeply suspicious of all power structures because that's what the news media has told us to do, then we, we got a discipleship problem now, or we begin to think that maybe God takes commands from me. Maybe I'm really the king. Maybe God does what I want Him to do. Maybe God follows my suggestions. Maybe God is a is in, is into some form of a democracy where church votes and God acts. Because all of these are various forms of distortions of the very nature of who God is. Now, the, the Bible is pretty clear that God is actually king. Over all things. And that God has Jesus set up as this direct human agent of kingship. And Jesus is going around preaching regularly the kingdom of God. And that John the baptizer acknowledges something about Jesus. That he who comes from above. That's just that phrase alone is pretty powerful. What does that mean? He who comes from above. Jesus came from Nazareth. What do you mean he came from above? Like, we know Jesus' earthly parents, right? And there were occasions where people actually stumbled over this with regard to Jesus. Because they're like, we know Mary. She was that woman that got pregnant when she was a teenager. That's literally the rumors that were going around about Jesus. In other words, that that dude came into, you know, being by way of shady circumstances. And these are the rumors that were going around about Jesus. So, therefore, that became a means of offense that people had against Jesus. But... What John the baptizer is asserting is that Jesus, even though he might have had a physical place that he came into this earth, before that, he came from above. Meaning he came from the presence of God, which is this kind of code of saying he is God who is transcendent above all and comes into this earth by way of a human agent. Obviously, Mary, we just celebrated Christmas. But the point of the matter is, is that John recognizes that Jesus is more than just a fantastic preacher. He's more than just an influencer. He's more than just a really awesome guy that just went around doing good stuff. He was far more than all that. He was not less than any of that, but he's far more than all of that. And that's why John, I think again, is able to say, he must increase. and I must decrease. There's something about who Jesus is. That in this hierarchy of, of life and organization of all things, that because he is king over all things, then, then my role, my responsibility, my place is somewhere under his headship. Does that make sense? And as long as we continue to live, try to figure out where do I belong in terms of king or queen over all things, then we will continue to find ourselves following the contours of meaninglessness, Of emptiness, despair, ebbing and flowing between life makes sense because I'm on top. Life doesn't make sense because I'm suffering. Life makes sense because I got money in the bank. Life doesn't make sense and it should probably end it because all my friends don't like me anymore. Life makes sense because I'm an influencer. Life doesn't make sense and I should just stop it because I've been canceled. What if, what if... A different story is breaking into the scene that says now God is king. He made all things. He loves you. He's deeply committed to you, for you, for your good, for your healing, for your wholeness. And he invites you to orient your life like John did underneath his headship underneath his power structure where he's the king and he uses his power not as a means to manipulate or to take advantage or to exploit you but as a means to cover you to carry you to care for you to love you that's how god uses his power that is the god that scripture continually proclaims is there that is the god and i would even add that you can really fully trust does that make sense a God that we are suspicious of that. Man, you have every reason, every right to be suspicious of him. But that is not the God that scripture reveals. That may be a God that we've been conditioned to believe by way of distortions and odd influences in our world and our culture at large. And by way of the propaganda of the mass amounts of information that's just flying around the internet. And, but the point of the matter is, is that if indeed uh, so much of the struggle and the battle we find in our lives. Have you guys discovered? is oftentimes a battle and the struggle of propaganda. What story? will I believe? Have you noticed that? Have you also noticed that there's a heck of a lot of stories out there? And they're not benign. Have you noticed that? They're not just like out there like, hey, if you want to believe this, just follow. It's, it's in your face. You have to believe this. If you don't believe this, you're an idiot. You're on the wrong side of history. You're a fool. You're going to lose your life. Everything's going to go bad. You're going to be canceled. Everyone's going to hate you. At the end of the day, the gospel comes as a breath of fresh air. This says, yeah, we're all broken. We're all messed up. But we have a God that loves us so much and has come into this world to do something about our brokenness. And he's deeply committed because he's the bridegroom. He's deeply committed. He will not break, not ever break his covenant with us. Though we may over time, oftentimes he does not with us. And then lastly, we see with regard to John's understanding and assessment of Jesus, he sees him as a truth teller. Read uh, verse 32. It says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. No one receives his testimony. And this little phrase, no one receives his testimony, again, has been debated. Is this just kind of hyperbole that no one believes it? Because obviously we know that there are people that did follow Jesus. So uh, maybe this is John's just kind of way of saying that even though he's this great, masterful king and he communicates certain details and information about someone else, about God in this particular case. On, on the mass scale, people are just simply not believing the report that he 's bringing so in this particular context, he paints Jesus as sort of this this uh, eyewitness eyewitness of what eyewitness of the Father that he came from, the king, the true king. again, if Jesus was just a preacher, just a really good, gifted preacher, had super keen insight into the the, the mind of of this uh, God or whatever, um, then then wouldn't make sense for John to say, he must increase, I must decrease, I will gladly surrender my ministry uh, at the expense of him. But if Jesus really did come from the way he claimed, from the heart of God, and come into this world giving us information, telling us about what God is like, He's coming to tell secrets about who God is, what God is like. And we get to listen and hear what those secrets are. In other words, the opinions and the ideas that we have about God are not ones that we craft on our own. It's ones that Jesus comes telling us. It's one of the reasons why we say that when we read the scripture, we, we really are reading the words that God wants us to learn and understand about who God is. And therefore, they're important for us. So what does Jesus come telling the truth about? There's at least four different things that he tells us. And I'll go through them one by one. Verse 33 it tells us that God is true, that God is truth. that God himself is truth. Sometimes we think of truth as being nothing more than propositional like uh, information. Like you, you hear something about God, learn this, follow this, uh, devour this. Uh, you can you can learn about God in class, and therefore, you're kind of in this level. Uh, it, truth in that context, especially within a Jewish context, does not necessarily mean just simple uh, data or facts or information. Truth in this context is about a relationship with God. You're being welcomed into the heart of things. Um, I do a little devotional every once in a while for our children's ministry volunteers. Which, by the way, people that help out in uh children's ministry just just so you know especially if your parent and your kids are dropped off back there with them they are sacrificing being in here um worshiping and all that so just be mindful of that Uh, just be grateful like i mean it's awesome like i'm so grateful that there are many people that do that what a what incredible blessing they are so always just make sure they you know show them gratitude and thankfulness and all that you know, just, uh, for what they do. But we do a little, uh, devotion, devotional with them. And I, and I did that earlier today. And there's a bunch of kids in there. And I asked, you know, so I want to hear kids, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And some of the kids like tell us, I'd like to, you know, I don't know. I can't remember what they said, but you know, I like to swing or I like to do whatever, you know, and, and it just struck me. It's like, that's how we get to know other things or d- data or information about different people. Like, like this room is filled with data information about your life, about what you're currently doing, what you're currently enjoying about life, what you did this past 24 hours, what are the bigger pictures about who you are. But again, we know that's not all that you are. It's something, tells us something about who you are, but not all that you are. What if God is something like that and he wants us to know him? How do we get to know God? And Jesus is telling us, I've come to bear witness who God is, and what God is like, and what God invites us into. So he tells us, first of all, that God is true. Verse 34 says, "I." secondly, is that he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So again, we see kind of an interesting insight into this nature of God. God the Father, uh, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Spirit. Uh, What we would describe as the triunity, or the uh, trinity, the triune nature of who God is, This is where we get that concept, the idea from that. Um, So what he's telling us that God, uh, and then thirdly, we see verse 35, for the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So another bit of information that we know about God is that God is filled with white-hot love for his Son. Loves Jesus. Have you ever seen a family that's just like really together? Let me tell you a story. Um when I was like twelve my parents divorced and I became a Christian right around when I was almost sixteen years old. And there was a family that I became really connected with. My wife and I actually became really connected with. In fact they lived in Newport Beach, like one of the most highest ritzy, nice and I grew up not really having a whole lot of stuff, and this family literally had everything. They owned lots of businesses. They lived in this place called Belcourt, which is like really, 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 back then was really, really nice. The guy who owned Quicksilver, if you're familiar with Surf Company, Quicksilver, like literally lived right around the corner from them. And the point of the matter is is that uh, they welcomed me into that. And I remember being like, oh, my gosh, they would got food everywhere they got food like i grew up in a family didn't always have food you know it was kind of like leftover casserole and stuff like that with potato chips on top you know that type of thing and so like they had food and it's not just like food it's like really good food and like like uh, intimins and you know, just I mean just like everything you can think of like that uh, like a young surfer sixteen year old kid longed for they had everything and I was so blown away by being welcomed into sitting down at a dinner with them and just like enjoying life. I remember the father like prayed and I'm like, oh, this is, this is cool. Like they, they love each other. There, there's love here. The, the, the sons, some of my best friends just also really, really good surfers. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like, I'm like part of them, part of this family. This is, mind-blowing and so you can imagine how disruptive it was after about a year and a half of that when i came to find out mom and dad got divorced because of infidelity and so on and so forth again it's kind of a down story but the point of the matter is 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 i went from the state of like oh my god i'm welcomed into this incredibly like put together beautiful gospel focused jesus-centered family which obviously was not but there was a season where I thought it was, and I just remembered the euphoria, the amazing reality just being welcomed into the very heart of things. And here's Jesus saying, the Father loves me. The Spirit comes forth from me without measure. This is the white hot core of the entire universe. What is it? In one word, it's love. And Jesus comes in this world and says you know that very thing that you're aching for that you feel the acuteness of the pain because you don't have or that you're longing for you thought you had and it went away it fell through your fingertips you thought you had it in this relationship you thought you had it in this marriage you thought you had it in this child and the diagnosis came in and then the divorce took place and the abuse began and then the manipulations started happening the mind games began to unfold and the constant cycle of pain and brokenness and betrayal just kept like wave after wave after wave beating you down, and yet the ache and the longing never went away for love? It's like Jesus is saying that thing that you long for? That's what I've lived in throughout all eternity. And that's what I've come to bring you into. We call that rescue. Another word for that is we call that home. I've come to bring you home. Everything else is exile. Everything else, every other relationship, every porn download, every video that we watch that just intrigues our emotions and gives us that jolt of adrenaline that just leaves us afterwards feeling filthy and defiled and broken. Every drug hit that we take, every bit of alcohol we drink that just kind of numb the pain, every bit of that is another form of longing for home. And this is what we see that Jesus is saying is that the Father has come and sent me into this world to bear witness, to testify of this. And then last thing we see in verse thirty six and I'm down for whoever believes in his son has eternal life. Just pause and think about this. What what John the Baptizer is declaring is so powerful, just listen. Whoever believes, whoever chooses to believe this story, the story of this God, and what he's come from and who he is and what he represents. Has eternal life. It's another way of saying, is welcome to that table. And welcomed. Like, truly loved and welcomed. Not as a means to an end, but as the end. As the end. Is, 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 is come into this particular place. And then he goes on to say, But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. And we've got to unpack this real quick and I'm done. Uh, it's really easy to get hung up on this particular phrase and and and, and turn this into a cartoon. And here's what I mean. Um, there's, I've, I've mentioned this many, many times that our culture is filled with uh, propaganda or means of cartoonizing particular ideas of God. In other words, it goes something like this. Um, God comes with this incredible offer of life and he says, but if you do not receive it, I will pour out my wrath on you. Like this weird schizophrenic being of the universe that on one hand is filled with love and kindness but on the other hand has this dark side this evil and this anger and wrath it's easy to read it as that i would suggest to you that's not the right way to read it the word wrath could imply rage it could imply that but it also throughout the new testament can also imply just disappointment like dissatisfaction if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody you know what disappointment's like. And it's weird because when disappointment comes, disappointment, especially if you're a parent and you have a child, and the older your children get, the more prone they are to make decisions uh, based upon that relationship that could actually lead to your heart of like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of them. Or, ah, I don't know, man, like, I'm disappointed in that choice. But let me ask you, when you enter into that state of disappointment, do you hate them? You want, wish thunderbolts and lightning and fury upon them? that's, that's No, that's weird. That's a weird schizophrenic dad. No, you love them. And it's because you love them, disappointment is a part of that emotional menu of options. So it's possible, is what I'm trying to say, by way of like a... An idea that you can have both love and disappointment simultaneously. And so what I would suggest to you is that what, he's, what I think he's conveying here is that those who enter into this covenantal relationship enter into this table, this love, this table relationship, this fellowship, this acceptance in the very heart of all things that are. Um, those that choose to not enter into that will continue to find themselves in a place of just regular brokenness, alienation, Heart longing, but never satisfied. Constantly giving our energy, our mind, ideas, our love away to other means, but always finding ourselves broken and let down and ruined. And at the same time, bringing upon ourselves the the displeasure of God, where God says, nah, it's not my best for you. That's not what I created you for. There's disappointment at the heart of the father that says that's, that's not who you are. You're not someone that just keeps cheaply giving your body away to be abused and to be taken advantage of by another human being that really doesn't care. that's not who you are. That's not how I made you to be. You're not a, a human, a male that just simply take advantage of other people and to treat them with disdain or disrespect. That's not who you are. That's not how you're wired. You're going against the way that things were created and finding yourselves constantly coming out the other end empty. Who you are is made to be in relationship with God. So in this particular context, I would put it this way, that judgment, this idea of judgment, really, for the most part, is brought on by ourselves, by the choices of turning, run away from God. And what we see is that it's God giving us over to those desires. So, for example, C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce, if you're familiar with that story, and again, this is more of just an analogy. He has this uh, image, and I'll just kind of end up on this particular thought. In The Great Divorce, it's kind of like as he's telling this story, the camera zooms in. All you see is this, this, this endless sea of gray town with millions upon millions of houses where everybody is constantly moving further and further apart from each other. Just imagine, you know, track home after track home. It's just everything's like dull gray. But those that live and inhabit these houses are kind of moving, spreading out further and further away from each other. They are nasty. They are self-centered, narcissistic, consumed with themselves. And then C.S. Lewis tells a story that then the lens basically widens and pans out. What you end up seeing is that these millions of miles within sprawling town is really nothing more than a crack in the sidewalk heaven's street and this is his way of saying hell is the shrinkage of who we are as human beings it's this this turning inward upon ourselves becoming less than what god intended for us to be this destruction this decomposition this breakdown this brokenness this destruction if you would and therefore as a result of that god's god's dissatisfaction of like uh, of like no that's not what i wanted that's not what i desired for humanity it's not what i desired for your life uh, C.S. Lewis would end with this particular statement in another writing. I'll just read it and I'm done. If you're familiar with this particular passage, it's, I think it sums it up pretty well. He says, I willingly believe that the damned or the condemned are in one sense successful rebels all the way to the very end. That the doors of hell are locked from the inside. They enjoy forever the horrible freedom that they've demanded and are therefore self-enslaved just as the blessed... Forever submitting to obedience of Jesus, become through all eternity more and more free. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. Listen carefully. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out your past sins and give you a fresh start? That's exactly what he did on Calvary. To forgive you? Yet many don't want to be forgiven. Because what happens in this exchange of forgiveness? Somewhere, somewhere, you have to admit, hey, I failed. Yeah, I did wrong. Yes, I stole that. Yes, I took advantage of these many females. Yes, I was abusive to my children. Yes, these things did happen. And I want absolution of my guilt. But how many of us don't want to go that route? We got to admit that. It's hard. It's painful. Nobody wants that. And then lastly, he asks this question, to leave you alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's exactly what he does. Leave you alone. I think one of the most terrifying realities of this world in which we live in, we can imagine a world in which we we pray, which is what a Christian is. God, thy will be done. And God changes our hearts and reformats our lives, like John the Baptist, where. God increases and we decrease, or God turns to us and our demands and our constant rebellion, and God says, I will be done. You want that thing so bad? Go for it. Let's see if it will give you everything that you hoped and dreamed and envisioned and desired and longed for for your life, only to discover over and over and over again it's always a failure to start. Always a failure to deliver. So, what we see is that John tells us this story about a God that is deeply devoted to us. So devoted, he comes into his own story to do something about the brokenness. And that means that we're left with this question like, what do we do now? What does that look like? So, in other words, I'll finish with this thought. If Jesus truly is all that he claims to be, like C.S. Lewis would even somewhere else describe, he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. If he's a liar, then just disregard it. Take this thing. Just get rid of it. It's, It's worthless. It's just fables and story. And that's all. Just get rid of it. Burn it. It's no big deal. If he's a liar or he's a lunatic, he's crazy, man. Or He's Lord. And if He's Lord, what C.S. would describe is that then, then everything in our lives ought to be cast down before Him as King. And we worship Him because He alone is worthy. We worship Him because He alone is good. We worship Him because He alone is beautiful. Or to put it another way, He alone delivers everything that our hearts are aching for and longing for in this life right now. He alone is what we would describe as the means of our salvation. To run into him is to be welcome to that table. To find open arms of a father saying, so glad you're here. So glad you're home. To run from him is to find ourselves continuing on this path of degeneration, dehumanization. What we would describe or Jesus would call hell. This brokenness. And it would be met with this disfavor, displeasure of God saying, that's not what I created for you. I have so much more for you because... I love you, and I'm for you. Don't run from me. Trust me. Devote yourself to me. So I'm going to have you all stand. I want to pray over us, and I'm done. I went a little bit over. Thank you for enduring me, what I had to say, for grace. Um, I want to pray over us, and then as we close out, then we will just kind of give you guys some ways to respond, and how to be a part of what God wants to in this world. So, Jesus, we invite you now to take our hearts, no matter what condition we're in, and we just thank you, Father, for how you receive us. You welcome us. No sin is too great. No act of self-righteousness is too off-putting, God. You welcome us to all come through that simple pathway of, of repentance, acknowledging our sin, turning from it, and faith, Having confidence transferred from whatever it is that we believed in before, whatever story, whatever narrative that we've uh, bought into, to have confidence and trust in you, Jesus, as our king. So, Lord, right now, take our hearts, no matter where they're at. Make us new. If anybody's here right now that has not ever transferred their loyalty, their faith, their confidence from whatever it is that they're believing in now to you, Jesus, would you right now meet them? Show them how much you are welcoming them. So, God, the rest of us set us out of here in power and strength to live a life that looks like Jesus. That's hard, but we know that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can do it well. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. May the grace, mercy, and peace from the triune God be yours.